Our passage this morning is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please sit, but don't touch your chair. Okay, I just seeing if that worked. Good morning. My name is Pastor Ransom Kent. Well, my name's not Pastor. My name's Ransom Kent, and I'm the pastor here. I'm so thankful that you all are with us, either here in person or online. Um, I'm excited uh, for this new sermon series. I guess I'm always excited for the sermon series. Um, but I love talking about our church. I love talking about our church, and I love uh, preaching from the Word. And so when I get to do both of those things at once, it's a good day. Um, so we'll be here uh, in kind of a, a, a thematic series for the next six weeks. Steve and I will be sharing these sermons. Uh, it's called Broken and Beautiful, and it's about the mission and values of our church. And so uh, just to kind of start, listen, all these words, mission, values, vision, strategy, tactics, there's like a dozen different definitions for these things, depending on where you work, where you live, where you go to church. And so I think the best thing to do is to start by defining what we mean, what we're saying, when we say mission and values. So first, when we say the word mission, mission answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing? And so it's not an end goal. Mission is not an end goal. It's actually more about the day-to-day. What are we supposed to be doing as a church? Our values, when we get to that starting next week, uh, our values are a unique set of characteristics that define us as a church. A unique set of characteristics that define us as a church. Sometimes values are aspirational, meaning we want to be more like this. Uh, actually, actually, all of our values will be somewhat aspirational. Uh, some of our values will be more actual than others, meaning we exemplify this already in some way, form, or fashion. So mission, what are we supposed to be doing? Values, what are the unique characteristics that define us as a church? Let's look at the con- let's remind ourselves of the context of what's happening here, Matthew 28. Now, of course, we just finished a series on Matthew, so if you've been following along with that, you have a good idea of where we're at. But uh, following up from last week, uh, Jesus is alive. Uh, he has appeared to over 500 of his followers. His work is is done. His disciples are here with him. He said to them, go meet me in Galilee. They are there. And there's this kind of unspoken question hanging here as the, as the disciples meet Jesus. And that question is going to sound familiar. It's what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do now? So Jesus has accomplished his thing. He's risen from the grave. What now? And so what Jesus does in response is he gives them their mission. And the mission is called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. That's the mission of every church. That's the mission of every individual Christian who follows Christ, the Great Commission. So uh, if you're looking, if you're maybe you're a youngster and you're, I said youngster, what's wrong with me? I'm not that old. Look, if you're younger than me is what I meant, 
uh, and you're looking for purpose, like what does God want me to do? Here it is. He wants you to do this. This is it. If you're a, if, what is another weird word? I'm trying to think of another one. I can't, I can't even think of one. Sorry. Uh, I'm looking to Steve. We're not, we're not connecting on that. Sorry. Um, so listen, why not just say the Great Commission and leave it at that? Why not just say, here's our mission, here's the Great Commission? Because here's, here's the thing. Just like individual Christians have different skills and resources and personalities, and so as we live out the Great Commission, guess what? It, it, it expresses itself in different ways. The same goes with local congregations. Each local congregation, God has called them together in a particular place with particular people, with a particular vision. And so our mission must also be a reflection of our uniqueness as a church. So that's why we don't just say, it's the Great Commission, let's move on. No, we want to express the Great Commission in our words so it makes sense to us, so it resonates with who we are. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Our mission statement is a restatement of the Great Commission for Grace Presbyterian Church. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. How about that? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this place And I don't mean this building. I do thank you for this building, but I thank you mostly for these people that you have gathered together for the gospel. Lord, I pray this morning that as we talk about, as we listen to your word, and we apply that directly to this place, this people, something would spark inside of us. It would make us excited to be here in fellowship and in truth. I pray this morning you'd help me to move out of the way that your glory would shine, that your agenda would be accomplished, that your spirit would move and convict us where we need to be convicted. We pray these things in the holy name of the risen Jesus. Amen. All right, so some some information first. So normally, on the front of our bulletin, we have four words. Given grace, extending grace, which we'll talk about that another time. This week, I had Phyllis put in our mission statement. So if you get out your bulletins, you can see our mission statement. Let me read that to you while you're getting it out. In joyful response to God's grace, we as broken people seek to live out the gospel together by loving God in worship, loving each other in community, and loving Columbia and the world through service and witness. Let me just say, when I, uh, was it now four years ago or so, three years ago, I was beginning to feel like I was being called to do something else. I was a, an assistant pastor down in Florida, um, and I started looking for a church, and I looked at a lot of churches, but I tell you this, this mission statement grabbed my eye, and it made me want to be here. And so I'm really thankful that I am here, uh, but we as broken people, that's a powerful thing we'll talk about later. But let me just say this, a couple things for housekeeping. First of all, if you look at the second part of this mission statement where it says loving God and worship and following, this technically is a strategy statement, all right? Just bear with me here. It's, a, it's answering not what should we do, but how should we do it. So we're gonna lop it off right there today. We'll talk about that another time. So we're gonna really be talking about the first part of our mission statement. And if I was gonna summarize it, keeping the, the, um, the meaning and the intention of those last few phrases, here's how I would rewrite this in a summary. So write this down if you can. Gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. Gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. If you're gonna take this whole mission statement and summarize it into a shorter statement, that's what it would be. Gathering broken people together to live out 
the whole gospel. What we're going to ask today and answer is how is this a restatement of the Great Commission for us? Let's take a look at verses 16 and 17. I think uh, this is a great way to transition from the Easter sermon last week to this week. We are seeing in person here uh, the new reality of the disciples. Remember Mary and Mary. Last week they went to the tomb. What were they doing? They're going to mourn their dead Messiah. He was dead as far as they knew. So they brought spices and, and other things to make it smell nice and honor him in any way that they could. But what happened? They arrived and the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And it changed their reality. It changed from our Lord is dead and mourning and, trying, and being confused, thinking about what he taught and who he was and how could he be in the grave. And it changed to our Lord is risen. It was a new reality. And what happened? In that frantic passage, they stopped and they grabbed his feet and they worshiped. And so here we see the, the new reality of the 11 disciples as well. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. What is the new reality for the disciples? The same as Mary and Mary. Their, their Christ, their Messiah is risen. I like the story of Thomas, sometimes called Doubting Thomas. Um, but look at this. This is from John 20. Thomas was doubling down on this idea. Jesus cannot have risen from the grave. In fact, he got kind of gross. He's like, until I stick my fingers in his wounds, I won't believe it. He said that. He was adamant. This is impossible. And so Jesus meets Thomas, and here's what he says. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do, you, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now listen to the glorious answer of Thomas in this new reality of the risen Lord. My Lord and my God. He worships. The new reality. What a great example of someone who doubted and, and wouldn't believe it, but as soon as he saw the new reality, he worshiped. Here's what we're seeing with the disciples. Now, it has this phrase, but some doubted. Uh, in most of the commentaries, this is not so much straight unbelief, like, oh my word, I can't believe that these guys think this is Jesus, but more of a hesitation. And the best explanation that I read this week was that uh, as Jews who had been taught their whole life do not bow to animate objects, only worship Yahweh and only at the temple. This is something very new to them. And so there's some hesitation of trying to un unload that baggage of what was before as they worship their Lord. And I love verse 18. Jesus knows what the disciples need to hear. He reiterates the new reality. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a reflection of Daniel Seven. So Dan, in Dan, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, he's giving prophecies about the Son of Man, this Messiah figure who will come. And here's what Daniel has to say about the Messiah. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the universe. Not just earth, not just heaven, both together. And so this phrase, this statement by Jesus to his disciples, by Jesus to us, is the reason and the motivation to do what he's about to ask them and us to do. And so this is our reality. Where I want to start this morning. This too is our reality. We worship what? A risen Lord. Not a great teacher. 
not a cool dude, right? We, we worship the risen Lord, the king of the universe. And he calls us to a particular response. And this, this reasoning of all authority and all heaven d- demands our worship, our loyalty, our obedience because of who he is. He's over us. And to us, he declares who he is. So what does this mean for us practically? This means that Jesus is the head of the church. This is important to understand who we are, that it's not the session, it's not the pastor. Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, There's a book uh, that's helpful on this topic for me, and it's by a guy named Andrew Purvis, and it's called The Crucifixion of Ministry. And this book is written to pastors, but I think the information also uh, applies to the church. And what he says is there is little to nothing pastors can actually do to change things. If things are going to change, Jesus has to show up. Jesus has to show up. So why do we do church? We don't do it for our own fame and fortune. We don't do it to satisfy our desires or to meet our needs. We don't do it to see our agenda to come to fruition. No, we do it to point ourselves and others to Jesus Christ. And so in his book, The Crucifixion of Ministry, he talks about two deaths that every pastor, and I think every church, must go through. And here's here's what they are. The first one is the death to high expectations. And he says, most pastors that leave the ministry actually leave after this one. Well, it wasn't what I expected, so I'm out of here, right? But if pastors persevere through that, they actually have a second death that happens in their ministry, and that is the death of thinking that they can change anything. And here, church, these deaths are not the death of ministry, it's the death of our egos, our agenda. It's the death of our desires, our needs. And I believe as a church, we all need to experience this. Our expectations need to die because it's not about you and me. The idea that if we just work hard enough, boy, I believe this, if I just work hard enough, things will change. That's not true. (laughs) I'm saying that to me, that's not true. It doesn't work in any part of life. And so we see here as Jesus declares who he is, that he is saying, like he says in Matthew 16, this is my ministry, my ministry. Jesus is saying that, not me. Don't digitally cut that out and have me saying that over and over on YouTube or something. Jesus is saying, this is my ministry. I have authority. He's saying, I have authority. I'll do this. I have authority in all of heaven and on earth. It's mine, says Jesus. And so what you're about to do, disciples, what we are doing, Grace Church, is not about us. It's about me, Jesus said. And so because of God's grace, we get to be at work with him. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? He could have done it all himself. We just saw him raised from the grave. What else could he not do? But what does he do? He invites us in instead. So here's a good summary of what our mission is at Grace. The mission of Grace Presbyterian Church is the same mission as God's grace. The mission of grace is what? The mission of grace. And what is the mission of grace? To see redemption as far as the curse is found. And so now we get to what Jesus is actually asking us to do, asking his disciples to do. Let's go to verse 19. Starting in verse 19, he says, go. Let's stop there. This sermon's going to be five hours long. All right. Um, 
go. Now listen, this is probably the most misunderstood word in the Great Commission. Okay, when we hear go, many of us panic. Oh my goodness, I have to leave where I am? Listen, context. This is where context makes things make sense. Where does Jesus say this? He says this to the 11 disciples standing on a mountain in Israel. That's where he says this. So when the word literally means to go from a place, he means to go from this place where I'm standing. So when we hear go, it doesn't mean where you're at is wrong. It means any place, but this particular hill is a great place to start. So if you're not standing on the hill where Christ ascended, you're in the place where we've been told to go. In fact, it's kind of a funny passage. Acts 1, Jesus ascends and the disciples are just standing there looking at the sky. And God has to send an angel to say, hey, what are you looking at? Get to work. He says, scram. That's in the Greek. Check it out. Get out of there. What are you doing? Stop looking up there. He didn't want them to build a monument here thinking about the ascended Lord. He wanted them to get to work. Go. Now, some scholars throw in this idea. It's, it's as you go, the tense. It's not necessary, but if it's a helpful detail, that, that is kind of what it's saying. As we go about our lives... As we go from this place, we are asked to do something. In our summary statement, what is the word that coincides with go? For us, the word is gathering. Gathering. Gathering is something that all of us can do, all of us already do, whether we know it or not. Gathering is for everybody. It's not just ministry experts. And in a sense, and if you want to look at it from a grace lens, gathering has a lot to do with hospitality has a lot to do with hospitality. And in fact, God has been in the hospitality business forever. Let's look at Leviticus, our favorite book. He says this, you shall treat the stranger, literally the foreigner, who sojourns with you, what? As the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's Leviticus 19.34. See the reasoning behind hospitality? Why should we be kind to people who aren't like us? Why should the Israelites take in foreigners, Gentiles, who sojourn with them and treat them as themselves? Why? Because God treated them that way when they were in Egypt. How God, the grace that God gave Israel was the reason they should give grace to others. And Jesus lived out this hospitality. Matthew 9, I've preached on this at some point. Jesus has just called Matthew the tax collector, and just after that, there's a party thrown. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And who has a problem with this? Of course, the Pharisees. What are you doing? Don't you know what these people are like? Don't you know what they do? And he says, I came to save the sinner, not the righteous. I came to save the sick, not the healthy. And so for us, gathering is going. Gathering is going. Let me put it in this light. I think this is helpful. Gathering for us, 21st century Christians who go to Grace Presbyterian Church, is simply putting our life in that purposeful context, putting our life in that new reality of a risen Lord. So uh, we aren't just lawyers. We aren't just accountants. We aren't just plumbers. We aren't just stay-at-home moms. We aren't just anything. We're not just that thing. What are we? We're gatherers. We're gatherers. Wherever we go, we are empowered to go and gather by who? The king of the universe. All of us in every vocation, we can do this. It's not impossible. You don't have, to have a seminary degree to do it. 
You just go and be about the Lord's work. What are we supposed to be gathering? We'll get there in a moment. First, there's another command. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. Jesus teases out the meaning of what making a disciple is in the next uh, half of 19 and the beginning of 20. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what is making disciples? Making disciples is baptizing and teaching. Before we get into what those really mean or kind of explain those a little bit, let me just make this clear. Everyone, everyone who is a follower of Christ is a disciple. You see? Discipleship isn't just something that like a mature, older Christian does for a younger, less mature. That is discipleship, but all of us Every single person, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, we are disciples. We are under the tutelage, the teaching of Jesus Christ. We are all on the journey of discipleship. And I pray that all of us, in some way or another, we're being pulled along by someone else. Oftentimes, it's not such a formal relationship. It's just being around other Christians and speaking the gospel into one another's another's lives. And it draws us closer to Christ. So what does Jesus mean by baptizing and teaching? First of all, baptizing is a relationship. This is an interesting way to think about baptism. It's an interesting way to think about baptism. What is baptism? Think about infant baptism, which we do here. Does infant baptism save those children? No, it doesn't. In case you're wondering, no. We're inviting children into the community. As the Westminster Confession says about baptism, it's a solemn admission to the party of the visible church. Now, I said a couple weeks ago, there ain't no party like a God's people party. Let me tell you something else. A Westminster Confession party blows it away. No, Jeannie did not think that one was funny. Okay. Um, Listen, our journey as a disciple is always in community. We don't do this alone. We don't do this alone. We can't hide ourselves from each other and be in community. We can't hide our sins and be in community. We can't hide what we're struggling with. We can't hide what we're learning and be in community. We can't even isolate ourselves on a mountaintop somewhere and listen to good sermons on the radio and really be moving ahead in our discipleship. Discipleship takes place in relationship with other disciples. So think about life groups for a minute. This is a refreshing way for me to think about life group. Life groups are a program that we offer in order to deepen our baptism. Think about that. To deepen our baptism, not just get to know each other. This is deepening this connection that God has given us with one another through baptism. And so as we live out our baptism, knowing one another, praying for one another, caring, speaking truth to one another, what happens? The community builds, discipleship takes place. And so we're creating Relationships. Let's talk for just a second. I'm going to take a pause. Let's talk for just a second about how we can enter into the visible church. That's what it's called here. What is entering into the church or entering into the invisible church, if you will, or the kingdom? What, what is entailed with that? I want to make sure we're clear that obedience is not the key to the kingdom. So you don't have to do certain things. Unlock the key, right? It's not about being a certain kind of person either. So you may be here this morning thinking, you know, I'm not sure I fit the mold of of what Ransom's talking about, or I don't fit the mold of the people that I see here. And and here's what I want to say about that. There is no mold for Jesus. 
There's no mold for Jesus. You don't have to be a standard type of person to be in or a standard type of person to be out. No one is worthy. Nobody. And so if you don't feel like you fit the mold of who we are, praise God that you're here because there is no mold. There is no mold. The only way to enter is to believe in Jesus and commit to following him. It's not about doing or being a certain type of thing. Back to the passage. Let's make sure we understand that Jesus says baptism and teaching, so it can't just be about community. It's not just belonging, okay? You see that? It's not just belonging. It's actually gospel community. And so think about this. Many, many churches, many, many churches are led astray when, and many Christians, in fact, are led astray when belonging becomes the primary principle for discipleship. When belonging becomes the primary value, what happens? We end up abandoning at least part of the gospel. And so Jesus doesn't just say baptizing, make sure everybody gets in, make sure everybody gets in. No, baptizing and teaching. There's a, there's a sense of truth. And so we must make sure we're not out of balance. Let's talk about teaching. This is an education part of our discipleship. It's not just belonging. It's not just being together. There's also this digestion of truth. Let's talk about methods of teaching real quick. Again, the Westminster Confession talks about Scripture, and it says in Scripture, it lays forth these uh, principles that must never be violated. Scripture, there's some things in Scripture that Scripture says this is true, and we must never violate it. But what's great about Scripture is that we must use Christian prudence, as the Westminster says, Christian wisdom, we must look at our society, look at our culture, look at this church we're in, and we have to decide how best to, to uh, uh, accomplish that principle. And so what Jesus is saying here is we must teach. There must be education. We must learn the truth. But he does not give us a particular method. What's great about that is that we can adjust and figure out what's best for us. There's lots of different methods given in Scripture. And so as a church... We're fairly young still. I think we're nine years old. Is that right? Nine years old? John, John's calculating our historian. Almost 10. Who knows? We're in the eight to 10 range. And we're a little, a little over nine. Okay, we're nine and a half. I guess we're doing that now. All right. How many months is that, John? Okay. Um, listen, we are still discovering as a church, we're discovering as a church the, the best method for education. We, we do Bible studies. We have Sunday school when there's not a pandemic, right? We do seminars. And we're still looking for a method that grabs hold of this place. But I want to say this. There's something deeper at play here. Something deeper at play here. No class, no Bible study, no seminar, no seminary degree, in fact. And, and this is really convicting. I wrote this down. I realized, oh, my goodness, this is for me. Not even studying for and delivering a sermon can replace our time that we spend one-on-one -on -one with our Father receiving his love through his word. Nothing can replace that. Think about the Reformation for a moment. We're a Reformed church. What's one of the big differences between what was going on in the Catholic church and what happens here? One of Martin Luther's biggest uh, problems was the fact that the Catholic church said, hey, guess what? Don't look at your Bible. Don't look at your Bible. you got to come to me for truth. You've got to come to the church for truth. And what did Martin Luther say? Listen, we're the priesthood of the saints. We don't need this governing body to tell us what truth is. We have the best study tool available to us, the Holy Spirit in us. 
We have it. If we know Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? As we read God's word, it illuminates it for us. It teaches us. It challenges us. And so when Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, it's not simply education and facts. That is important. Facts are important. Biblical facts are important. But really, really deep down, it's about relationship. And it's not about this horizontal relationship. It's about the vertical one. We need that relationship with Jesus Christ that he offers. Why? Many reasons. One reason is that the world is at war with the truth of Christ. It's at war with us, church. It's at war, at, at war with the word of God. And if we're going to stand with him, we're going to stand with the king of the universe, and we're going to say, I belong to him. If we're going to be his people and be about his ministry, we have to know what he believes. We have to align ourselves with it. We have to. So here's an example. Jesus Christ himself the king of the universe stands for a biblical sexual ethic. He does. It's in the Bible. It's in there. And what he says from his scriptures is that sexual intimacy is meant for a God-ordained monogamous relationship called marriage between one man and one woman. He says that in his scriptures. He affirms the account of Genesis 1. So how do we know he believes this? He says it himself. He's being tested by the Pharisees on divorce. And they have this convoluted question. And here's Jesus' response. Speaking of principles that must not be violated and then applying them in different methods. Here's what Jesus says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them for the be from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Or if you grow up with the King James, what does it say? Let no man tear asunder. That's a really great way to say it. Jesus teaches something that's relevant to this world. This very idea is seen as closed-minded and wrong in our world. And we need to know that our King, our Savior, stands for it. It's important to hear, church. And the best way to hear it is in that loving, vertical relationship as we receive truth from the Father. So it's not just about that horizontal relationship. That is part of it. Making, dis making disciples is partly this. Making disciples is also this. And, and what that results in is a whole disciple. So as we look at our summary statement, what part of our statement is expressing the, the, the way that we uh, want to communicate making disciples, and it's living out the whole gospel. Living out the whole gospel. This phrase is packed with information. But in a sense, what we're saying is the gospel is more than just those four books that tell the story of Jesus. No, it's everything he taught about grace, discipleship, the law, future, glorification. It's everything he accomplished for us without any effort from us. And so what we're saying is, when we say living out the whole gospel, we're saying there is conformity. There's conformity to the gospel. Now listen, there's conformity without the gospel. It's all through God's church, and it's terrible. It's called legalism. Be like me. Be like me. Be like us. That's not what we're saying. Living out the whole gospel is a conformity to Christ that pours from that gracious relationship. So as we spend time with our Father, as He loves us, 
in those intimate moments daily as we are in his word, as he changes us, we're conformed to the king of the universe, becoming more and more and more like him. All right, now we get to the who. So we're to go and we're to make disciples of who. Jesus says in verse 19, excuse me, 20, all nations, all nations. In this context, Jesus is saying something very specific to his 11 disciples. Um, he's saying to them, listen, this is more than just a for Israel thing, okay? They had been a part of God's people. God, from the beginning, had chosen a nation to be his people. And so that was the mindset they were in. Jesus came to do something more complete. And so God had used Israel as a way to bring his truth to this culmination in this moment. And what Jesus is saying, listen, Israelite brothers, it's not just about Israel anymore. We're going to be including some others. And that might be uncomfortable for you. In fact, it took a long time, a good time, for the disciples to really connect with this. You see, in Acts 10, God reminding Peter through this awesome, like, lobster, prime rib kind of thing, dinner coming down from the sky, pork chops and everything. He said, listen, what, what I call clean, you do not call unclean. Peter, remember. And then again, Peter and Paul have it out. Why? Because Peter goes back to these racist ideals like, oh, I'm not going to hang out with the Gentiles because that makes me, that hurts my reputation. And then we see in Acts 15, they're really still trying to figure out what does it look like for the, the Jews and the Gentiles to be in church and in community together. It took them a while to figure this out. And so what is Jesus saying to us when he says all nations? He's saying, listen, Grace Presbyterian Church, it's more than just a people that make me feel comfortable thing. It's more than just people who look like me or act like me or in the same job type as me. It's more than just the people that you know and that you're comfortable with. That's what he's saying when he says all nations. He's saying, listen, broken people just like you of all kinds are welcome. We should go search for them. You see, church, what I love about our mission statement is it recognizes something about us. It's not just about them. Oh, they're broken. We've got it together. No, we as broken people, we've been gathered in, do you see? And you know what that means? We've done been broken. That's what that means. We're broken. We're just like them in that way that our sin, we're not just victims of it, we're villains with it. We're just like the world other than the fact we've been saved by Jesus Christ. So the mission of grace is the mission of God's grace. And I want to tell you this, as the disciples did their job, you can read it in Acts. Acts 6 is a great example. As, as the disciples went from this mountain and did the work of Jesus, guess what? Things got complicated and they got messy. Acts 6, the disciples forgot to feed the widows. <laughs> it's, oh man, oh boy, we forgot. Big deal. People are upset. They forgot. They missed the mark. Things got complicated and things got messy. And church, I pray that someone, if they mean it, says amen to this. If we do, as Christ calls us to do, if we go out gathering in broken people to live out the whole gospel, things here are going to get complicated and messy. Amen? I forced it. I had to. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. We want complicated and messy. 
Because that means Jesus Christ is doing his work. We're not looking to create something we like. It's not what we're doing. It's not why we're here. We're here to create something that's only possible through the power of Jesus. And who can make complicated and messy work? Only Jesus. That's it. I can't. For sure I can't. We're part of something here that's supposed to honor Christ alone, not ourselves. So paraphrasing Andrew Purvis again, our basis for ministry here is not creating a church that looks like what we think it ought to look like. Our basis, the foundation of our ministry is continuing the ministry of Christ. Where is Christ pushing in? That's where we should push in. Where is Christ moving? That's where we should move. It's not about what we want or we think it should be like. It's about where Jesus is going and us following him. Do we have a long way to go? You betcha. I pray we have a long way to go. But it's not our mission. It's Christ's mission as the head of the church. Church, listen, a few, I hope, simple things that we can hold on to as way of application. First thing, I pray I hope that each one of us in our own way can grab hold of this idea that we have a purpose whenever a vocation we find ourselves. I pray that, that we can become gatherers. I think many times we think, well, how can I use my work? Or how can I use my relationships for Christ? It's about gathering. It's about that hospitality. It's about being on purpose with whatever you do. And so... Going and gathering is about inviting people into your life for the purpose of sharing the gospel and creating community. We make that so complicated, and I think it's not so much. It's about just being yourself where you are and being willing to talk about Jesus. You don't have to have the speech ready. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's not what it's about. It's not, that's not what it's about. It's about just sharing yourself, and part of you is what? Jesus saved you. Secondly, so grab hold of that purpose, whatever vocation we find ourselves in. We're gatherers. Secondly, I I pray and I ask us all to pray for opportunities to gather those who are not like us in. To gather those who are not like us in. I used to say (laughs) diversity begins at our dinner tables, but now with COVID, maybe it's like in our backyards, distance with masks. That's where diversity begins, I guess. But listen, praise the Lord, we are surrounded by the nations. We're the United States of America. Every kind of person you could ever hope to know is somewhere in your community. Somewhere. And and they're just simply a neighborly wave away, a dinner time away, an Easter egg hunt away. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're, you're, you're about in your life, involve people. They may not respond, that's okay. You're not failing. But pray for opportunities to gather in those who are not like us in. And the third thing is I really believe it's important for us as those who are already disciples to prepare for, that, for the relationship and education necessary for growing the kingdom. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples. There's some work involved here. And here's what we don't have to do to be ready for that. We don't have to do better. We don't have to like reorganize our schedules and be better time managers. It's not about finding a better reading plan. It's not about doing. It's not about doing. It's really about receiving. As we prepare for relationship 
and education, we prepare for making disciples, it's about pressing in to the relationship we already have with Jesus Christ. Pressing in. Here's a vision for our church. Rather than being a, a church that plants dozens of churches, rather than being a church that grows to a thousand, rather than being a church that does whatever, 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 what if we're just a church where we are a people that sits with our Father and receives His grace, His mercy, His never-ending love, and His wisdom on a daily basis? What if that's who we are? Wouldn't that be glorious? We just sit with our Father and receive. Oh, The mission of grace is the mission of God's grace. And so what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be receiving the grace given by Christ and extending that grace to one another in the world around us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we have been gathered as broken people together this morning. That's, there's no one here that doesn't fit that description. We are broken. We are not whole. We are victims of sin. We are villains in our sinfulness. Every single person here, whether they're listening online or they're sitting in the seats, Father, impress upon us that, that the world outside is no different in that way. And as we sojourn with strangers of the world, let us be reminded what you have done for us. We didn't earn our salvation. We don't fit a certain mold. We don't have certain characteristics. We don't fit a standard. We have nothing. And even though we have nothing, you saved us anyway, like the Israelites from Egypt. And because of that grace you have shown, that you desire to show us every day through your word, as we sit and receive, may we show that same grace. May we speak that same truth. May we invite those people into that same relationship as we go about our lives. May we be gatherers. May we also be whole disciples. Neither one of those things will be successful if you're not in it. So pray. I pray this morning, Lord, that you are in this church that you squash my ego, you squash my plans, you squash my vision, you squash all of our agendas, Father, for your own. I pray that. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.